0: This morning, we are in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. If you remember, last week, if you were here, we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2a. This week, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2b through 3. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor, if you're only doing one and a half verses a week, yeah we're never gonna get through this it's it won't be that way the entire time but these these verses are rich in theology and uh, we 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 need to take time on these verses so we are in the book of Hebrews chapter one verses two b through three I'm gonna just read verses one through three if that's okay with you long ago at By the word of his power, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This morning we want to talk about the supremacy of Christ. I have nothing to do today but preach Jesus Christ. Those were the words of Charles Spurgeon as he preached over this Passage of scripture. We as followers of Christ should never be ashamed to preach Christ. I hope to proclaim the glorious gospel of God as long as I live, and I hope that when I am dead and gone, and as long as the Lord tarries, there will be a succession of men who will think and preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want you to understand this morning that as we look at this text, the very best thing that we can do is preach Jesus Christ. The text will allow nothing else. The church can talk about the multiple needs that it has, but this is the greatest need, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the theme that causes the Father to rejoice. Jesus Christ made known is the mission of the Holy Spirit the text that we have before us, oozes with Jesus Christ. And the grand theme of these verses are the supremacy of Christ. Part of the problem with Christianity today is that we can focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and not be moved in worship of Him. We look at the splendor of creation and we stand in awe but we look at the splendor of the supremacy of Christ and we are not moved. My goal this morning is that we would understand that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and that the supremacy of Jesus Christ would indeed move us in worship of who He is. I completely understand that my feeble attempts to describe to you the glories of Jesus Christ this morning will be inadequate. My only hope is that you will not only listen to what I have to say, but that you will take time to revisit this passage of Scripture and ask God to reveal more and more to you about the beauty of His Son. The most important question that we can answer deals with who is Jesus Christ. The reason It is the most important question, is that all of eternity hinges on the answer, and that is exactly why false religions and cults are so dangerous. Things like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons distort and deceive people about who Jesus is, and they are leading people straight to hell. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save anyone from their sins. He is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and he is the only one worthy of our worship. We cry out as Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. The correct answer to who Jesus is does not come from human understanding but it is revealed to us. And now as we look at last week, the author is showing to us that Jesus is the final revelation from God and how he, and now in this passage of scripture, he gives us seven phrases that are profound and reveal the supremacy of Jesus Christ and these seven statements when taken together show Christ as true King Christ as the final prophet and Christ as the perfect priest who made purifications for our sins the point of this passage is is a revealing to us that God is made known to us in no other way other than in Christ Jesus because he is the exact imprint of who God is and since Christ is supreme over all our only rest- response to that is to bow before our sovereign Lord and to worship Him. That's what we are called to do. That Christ is revealed to us. And that revelation comes in no other way than through jesus christ now some of you may know that there's over the past uh week there's been gazing into the stars for some sort of revelation and thinking that our world's going to end when planet x collides with planet earth on september 23rd well as you know it's past september 23rd and we're still here because that didn't happen that's because we try to look for things beyond Scripture. To try to find some sort of revelation when God said all the revelation I've given to you is in my son Jesus Christ and in the word that was written all about his life. So this is all you need. don't need to gaze at the stars and look at constellations and try to find answers. It's all right here in God's word for us. And focus is on who Christ is. So this morning let's look at what God's Word says concerning the supremacy of Jesus Christ. First, we see this, that Jesus Christ is the appointed heir of all things. When it says that Jesus is appointed heir of all things, what does that mean? What what does it mean that He's heir of all things? What the author is doing is writing of the person of Christ, and in that person of Christ, there is God, and in that person... There is man. But this description, heir of all things, is a description of the person of Jesus Christ as man, and as God and man combined. As God alone, Christ is heir of all things. Without appointment. He doesn't need to be appointed, because He is God. However, in the complex person of God, being God and man, conjoined, the Father has appointed Him To be heir of all things. So because Jesus is both God and man. Then the Father appoints Him to be heir of all things. This is speaking to Christ as Redeemer. It is a title. And it shows that Christ is supreme. No man is great enough or worthy enough to be the heir of God. Only Christ can fulfill that role to be heir of God. He alone lived a perfect life before God. He alone lived in perfect obedience to God. Therefore, he alone is only worthy to be heir of God. John Calvin tells us that the word heir speaks to Christ in his humanity. He says it is for this purpose that he might restore to us what we had lost in Adam. Calvin also says that it follows that we must be very miserable and destitute of all good things, except He supplies us with His treasures. These words are a great encouragement for anyone, but they're especially a great encouragement for those who do not know Christ as Savior. Because the idea is that He is Heir of all things, tells us that Christ possesses everything that is needed in order to save you. Christ does not lack in anything, in any way, shape, or form, and if we come and trust ourselves to him, he will save us. And as the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we then become joint heirs with Christ as his children. And we will want be be one day be with him throughout eternity in heaven. However, you only have a share in Christ's inheritance if you place your faith In Christ. If you have not placed your faith in him. You're still trapped in your sin. And you're not one of his children. And therefore you have no share of his inheritance. So make sure you're trusting in him alone. Today. He is heir of all things. Not some things. And by coming into relationship with him. We become joint heirs with him. Christ is heir of all things. Secondly, second statement that is made. Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 2 says that through Jesus the world was made. In the Greek, the word world is ages. It is everything that exists anywhere. So everything in existence anywhere is made by Christ. Jesus Christ is the creator of everything in this age and in the ages to come. He is the creator of all things, including time and space. Colossians makes it clear that He created all things and that they were created for Him. Jesus is the Lord of all time because He created time. In John chapter 2, it says that everything came into being through Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or as Paul had put it in Romans from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is one with the Father. Before time ever even began, He was with God the Father. Athanasius, when raging against Arianism, which is mainly modern day Jehovah's Witness, said that when the writers affirmed that Jesus created the world, they are declaring the eternal and everlasting being of the Son and are therefore designating Him as God. So they're saying that Jesus is God. Make no no mistake about it. That is what the author of Hebrews is writing. Now the typical Jehovah's Witness will go to Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. And I love it when they do that with me and you'll find out why, but because we like to just kind of pull out verses and not look at the whole thing. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation and they'll latch on to the word firstborn and say that Jesus was created, and therefore He is not eternal, therefore He was not with God in the beginning. Most false religions and heresies will take and bend the truth just a little bit. They'll take a little bit of truth, and then they'll bend it just a little bit so that you can latch on to that little bent truth, and then they use that to declare their heresy or their false religion. They leave out verse 16, which explains verse 15. When in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The word firstborn in Colossians 1 15 is not a reference to a chronological order or time, but it is a reference to legal rights of authority and inheritance. The fact that the Father through Jesus Christ created everything shows us that Jesus is God. You know why it shows us that Jesus is God? Because if Jesus created everything, which it says, then that means that He had to already be here when creation came about. And if He was already here, and there was nothing here, then He created it out of nothing. And if He created it out of nothing, that means that He has to be God. Because man has never taken nothing and created something. Only God can take nothing and create something. So, Jesus is God. Think of the world as you know it. Think of an atom and all of its intricacies or the human DNA, which modern science barely even understands. All of this is a reflection of the design of God. Furthermore, often designs are interdependent, meaning you can't have only part of it. You must have it all because one part depends on another part in order to work correctly. And yet Christ is upholding everything. Think about our universe. From the mind of physicist Stephen Hawking, who is not a believer, but just think about what he says about our galaxy. He says it's an average size. It would take 100,000 light years to cross our galaxy. He said, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 thousand million stars it is commonly it is a commonly held belief that the average distance between galaxies is 3 million light years on top of that the work of Edwin Hubble based on the doppler effect has shown that all red spectrum galaxies are moving away from us and that nearly all are red thus the universe is constantly expanding some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion Light years away. And it's racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Saying that our galaxy, our universe is constantly expanding. And that demands that it must have a beginning. And we know the beginning. In the beginning, God. And we know that Jesus is the creator of all things in our universe. We see the creative power of Christ. Jesus spoke everything that you can see in this world into existence. And here's the thing. He did it out of nothing. Not only is he heir of all things, not only is he creator of all things, But then it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This verse is a reflection of the oneness of God with the Father. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, it was the glory of God that settled on the mountain. It was the glory of God that was manifest at the tent of meeting as it was a visible sign to the people that God was with him, that His presence was still with them. After the Ark of the Covenant was captured, the people called out, the glory of God has departed. The author of Hebrews says, this glory, this glory that you are all familiar with, this that you all know about, has been with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because He is the radiance of the glory of God. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the glory of God. Remember who this was written to. The Jews would have rejected this passage of Scripture because they did not acknowledge the deity of Christ. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, the glory of God is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. That would be mind blowing to the person of that day, especially the Jews who felt the glory of God still dwelt in the temple at that time. And the author of Hebrews says, no, the glory of God is seen in Jesus Christ. This statement and the next statement were used. To refute heretics that rejected the divinity of Jesus. In fact, the Arians rejected Hebrews from the scripture because of this text right here. These verses show the union of the son with the father and yet his distinctness from the Father, just like the brightness can't be separated from the light because it is by nature coexistent with the light, so it is with Christ. You do not have light without radiance and you do not have radiance without light because light is in the radiance and the radiance is in the light Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, the Son is co-eternal with the Father. The Son exists in the Father, and the Father in the Son. Yet the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. And we can't wrap our mind around it. The reason this is important is because if we have a false doctrine of the person of Christ, we are led into a false um, view of who Christ is is and we say that he had a false work and it undermines the whole system of the gospel jesus christ is not a reflection of the radiance of the glory of god that's not what it says it doesn't say that jesus is a reflection of the radiance of the glory of god but he is the radiance of the glory of god just as the radiance of the actual sun reaches the earth so in christ the glorious light of god shines into the hearts of men and women he is the radiance of Of the glory of God. Fourth statement. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the very essence of God. What God is, is made manifest in Christ. In other words, to see Christ is to see God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So whatever God is, Christ is. If man wants to see God, he must look to Christ. The Greek word here, character, which is the ESV, translates as imprint, means an exact copy or reproduction. It's understood as the exact expression. That is the result of printing or engraving with a stamp. It's like when you have a, a coin and a coin is stamped. That that coin is the exact copy of the stamp that made it. So the stamp comes down, stamps the coin, and you have a coin which is the exact copy of the stamp. That's the point of what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus is the exact copy. This is the point that Jesus, the Son of God, bears a very stamp of God's nature. The word nature In the Greek is this word hypostasis. It is where we get our theological term hypostatic union if you've ever heard of it. It's Which is to say that in Christ there are both uh, the complete divine nature and the complete human nature. In other words, Christ is truly God and Christ is truly man. So the word hypostasis means whatever something is to its essence or substance, whatever makes something what it is. Here it's referring to God. And so the Son, Jesus, is the exact representation, the embodiment of God as God really is. God is being made manifest in Christ so that to see the Son is to see what the Father is like. There's no way around it. The author of Hebrews is saying that the Son... Is God. That's what he's saying. The Son is God himself. And as Jesus told Philip in John 14.9. Who has seen me. Has seen the Father. If we want to know the Son. We must know him. As he is revealed to us. By the Son. According to Luke 10.22. There's some deep theology. In just this phrase. Which is why the church fathers used it. To defend the faith against heresy. However, we must not overlook what is plain and simple in this verse either. And that is this, that we can only know God through Jesus Christ. What is plain and simple and clearly revealed in these phrases is that unless Jesus came to this earth as a man to reveal God to us, we would have never understood God. God is only known through His Son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God in the flesh. John Calvin said God cannot be comprehended by us unless as far as He accommodates Himself to our standard. The story is told of a king long ago who ruled in Persia. He was a wise and good king. He loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived. He wanted to know about their hardships, and often he dressed in clothes of a working man or a beggar and went into the homes of the poor. No one whom he visited ever thought that he was their ruler. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food that the poor man ate. He spoke cheerful, kind words to him. Then he left, and later he revisited that poor man again and disclosed his identity by saying, I am your king. The king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or a favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. God is willing to make any accommodation to have fellowship with us, even Becoming man. The point of Jesus being the exact nature and imprint of God. Is that Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. So we have seen that Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Hebrews says that Jesus is the creator of all things. He says that Jesus is a radiance of the glory of God. He says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. (coughs) Fifthly, Jesus sustains the universe by the word of His power. Jesus sustains the universe by the word of His power. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. That this whole world is upheld by Christ's word. If he did not speak its continued existence, then it would immediately go back into the nothingness it came from. There is nothing on the face of this earth that exists independently of Christ. Nothing other than God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Let's be clear, this is not a picture of Christ, kind of like a uh, uh, atlas, where he has the world on his shoulders or something like that. But is a picture of Christ carrying all things forward to their appointed course. He is personally and continually involved in sustaining the universe. He is not passive in doing it either, but he is providentially governing the universe. If at any time he ceases to govern the universe. If at any time Jesus ceases to uphold the universe by His spoken word, we're all goners. This phrase is a definitive refutation of deism. Because the deist says that God created everything, but then God bowed out of creation. And He now lets everything just kind of run its course. So God created the world and And then He just said, okay, I'm done. But Scripture makes it clear that there is not one single molecule in the universe that acts apart from God's providential governance. That He is in control of every single thing on this earth. We try to explain away natural disasters and the like as not being under the providence of God But every single snowflake, a drop of rain, a bolt of lighting, a gust of wind, they all obey the commands of God. Psalm 148 verse 8 says, Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word. He directs everything, whether it's the roll of the dice According to Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He controls the rise and fall of nations. Job 12.23, He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Even the number of days that we will live is already determined by God. Psalm 139.16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every single one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This passage says that Jesus uses his power to sustain the universe just by speaking. You know what that means? There's no such thing as random chance or luck. Nothing on this world just happens. We are totally and utterly dependent on God and everything that comes to us comes from Him according to His purpose and for our good. And just in case we are confused about chance or luck, things working for our good, listen to the Scripture. Remember Joseph, when he spoke to his brothers Back in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or how about Job in Job chapter 2 verse 10. You know Job had that great wife that said, why don't you just curse God and die, Job? And Job says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women Would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Or how about the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here is the beauty. If Christ upholds Everything by His Word. Guess what? He has no problem upholding me. If His Word upholds the earth and heaven and the universe, that same Word upholds you. If you'll trust Him, there is no fear he is in control and I pray if you do not know Christ as savior then today you will before you leave this building because he upholds the universe and he can uphold you sixthly Jesus made purification for our sins we have this just um, just juxtaposition, I can never say that word, in verse 3, when we see that all things are upheld by the power of His Word, and then immediately following that, we have after making purifications for sins. Stop and think about that for just a moment. Jesus as God upholds all things By His Word. And He could simply say, or have said, I am done. And this world would disintegrate. And all sinners in the world would disintegrate. But instead, Jesus as God, who could have just wiped everything out because He's upholding it, leaves the glory of heaven, took on the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, in order to purify us from our sins. That blows my mind. Seriously, if, if, if we thought of a God so powerful that he can just stop speaking and we die and he looks down at sinners and instead steps out of heaven to die on a cross by those same sinners, if that doesn't move you to amazement, I don't know what will. If you're not moved to amazement by the fact that God could just speak the Word and you'd be dead, but instead He steps out of heaven and dies for you, if that doesn't move you, I don't know what does move you. In the hymn of Charles Wesley, Amazing Love, How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Church, sometimes I don't even know what to say when I think that the high king of heaven stepped out of heaven and came to the dunghill of my sin in order to save me. It seems so degrading. You can think of the dirtiest job imaginable, and it would not compare with what Christ did in taking on our sin. The holy, sinless Son of God, incapable of sin, stooped down to take away my sin. And look, it says He made purification for our sin before He went back into heaven. His death on the cross over two thousand years ago purified my sin before I was even born. Before I would even commit the sin that I'm going to commit tomorrow, His death on the cross way back then, purified my sin. The sin I may commit five years from now, His death purified that sin. It blows my mind. There was my sin before God. As if it already existed in its filth. But Christ came and cleansed them. <laughs> that, that should make us rejoice. That He cleansed us of our sin before we even knew about sin. And yes, I, I agree, we can't wrap our mind around it. It doesn't make it untrue. Now, when it speaks of Jesus making purifications for our sin, in the Greek, that word purification is in the aorist tense. It means that Jesus accomplished the purification for our sins once and for all. Jesus did not just purify the sins that we might commit, Jesus did not purify the possible sins. But He purified our sins through His death on the cross. In other words, His death on the cross was effectual. Meaning that it actually accomplished something. His death on the cross accomplished something. It didn't just make something possible. It accomplished something. He purified us from our sins. That's what it says. By His blood. He gave Himself for us. And, and all that He had, all that He was, He gave as the ransom price for us. How can we put a price on that? Now here's the thing. You can look around. You can look up to the highest heaven. And you can look um, down to the lowest hell. You won't see your sins. You can look into your heart of hearts and you will not see your sin. Does that mean that we don't sin? No. It means that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sin. Listen carefully. Christ has so purified us from our sin that it no longer exists. The work of Christ on the cross was a completed work. And it brings an end to sin. Not in the case that we never sin. It brings an end to the sin. That it no longer exists. And you and I are purified from it. So sin ceases to exist. Listen, if Christ has made an end to your sin then that exact, that is exactly what it means. He, is, he has said as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Christ did this on Calvary's cross. He did it effectually. He did it finally. He did it totally. He did it completely and he did it eternally. He purified all of his people from their sins by taking it on the cross, by bearing its dreadful consequences, by canceling our Debt, by casting it into the sea and by putting it away forever this is his love for us that he paid the price that he cried out on the cross these words it is finished one word in the greek to tell us die and i believe him now i'm going to say something controversial I know that's hard to believe. And who knows, I might have to get out the resume and dust it off or something a little bit later. We'll see. But I want you to know that my desire as a pastor has always been and will always be to preach the Bible, not just what makes people feel good. And I would ask that you consider what I am saying this morning. And I would ask for your understanding, because I believe that when Jesus died on that cross, He did not make purification for the sins of all people. And you're not going to hear that anywhere. You might hear it a few places. If He made the purification for the sins of all people, then all people would be purified. And if all people are purified, then all people would go to heaven. And if all people go to heaven, then we would be universalists. I also do not believe that when he died, that he only made purification possible for people. Because the text says that he made purification for our sins. It doesn't say He made purification possible for your sins. It doesn't say that He died so that you might one day receive that purification. It says that He made purification for our sins. What I believe is that He actually secured the purifications of the sins for all those that the Father had given to Him. Now, you say, well... Pastor, where do you get that from? I get that from John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There is nothing that you can do to complete the work of Christ because it is done. There's nothing more required of us to make purification for your sin because it is complete. Those for whom Christ died are cleansed from all guilt. He was made a curse for us. That is what the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, I tremble when I hear some people talk about the disappointed Christ, or about His having died at the peradventure to accomplish He knew not what, dying for something which the will of man might give Him if it would, but it might possibly be denied by man. I buy nothing on such terms as that. I expect to have what I purchase. And Christ will have what He bought with His own blood, especially as He lives again to claim His purchase. Plain and simple church, Christ paid the price on Calvary and He will have what is His and what He bought. He didn't die to make it possible. He died to purchase you. And it's very comforting to know That our purification is secure because Christ paid the price for us. And he's going to get what he paid for. Seventhly, and lastly, well, not lastly, I'll have a conclusion, but point number seven. Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. The fact that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God it's one of the earliest uh, affirmations of the Christian faith. The fact that Christ is seated is significant because it's a simple that his work of redemption is complete. In the Old Testament, when the priests entered the Holy of Holies, they always stood. They, they made atonement uh, for sin. However, Jesus offered himself up for our sins once and for all. And then he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. Seated at the right hand of the Father is the position of highest honor. Now this is not a a literal place. In that God, who is spirit, he doesn't have a right hand and a left hand. So it's not literal. This phrase is what we call, um, uh, a big theological term, anthropomorphism. It means it, it uses human language to convey to us something Uh, of god so that we can understand it and in this case there is no higher designation possible for christ than that he is seated at the right hand of the father his seat at the right hand of the father of god is also a reference to his being sovereign ruler of the universe which we already looked at but there is another aspect to christ being seated at the right hand of the father as well and i love what kent Hughes says he says this it is here in his supreme exaltation at God's right hand, that Christ intercedes for us. Paul asks, who is he that condemns? And then he answers triumphantly, Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life? Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The thought is utterly sublime but true. This glorious cosmic being at the apex of His splendor is praying for you and for me. Can it really be Jesus at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you and I? God's Word says it is so. It's a wonder of wonders. I can't even begin to imagine. Finally, even though the Son is equal with God the Father, in His being the Son, He voluntarily voluntarily submits to the Father to carry out His divine purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the. This is not some sort of ontological submission where we're saying that the that in the Trinity there is greater gods and lesser gods. But rather there is one God that exists eternally. And three co-equal persons. What we are speaking of is a relational submission. It exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead voluntarily submits to each other for their respecting roles. This is simply a description of the relationship between the Father, between the Son, and between the Holy Spirit. In fact... Paul uses this order in the Godhead when he makes a strong argument for the leadership of men over women within the local church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Men and women are equal in their being, but they are both heirs with Christ, but there is to be an order of headship and submission, which is a reflection of the image of God. Seven statements in the book of Hebrews. Seven statements about the supremacy of Christ. Seven statements that lets us know that He is in control of all things. And that if He did not continually speak our universe into sustaining it, we would be gone. Wow! What a great God we serve. Neil Martin, a member of the British Parliament, was once giving a group of constituents a guided tour of the House of Parliament. During the course of the visit, the group happened to meet Lord Helsham, then Lord Chancellor. He was wearing all the regalia of his office. Helsham recognized Martin among the group and cried out, Neil! Not daring to question or disobey the command, the entire band of visitors promptly fell to their knees. As we have looked at these verses, we've seen that they're all about Jesus. That he is heir of all things. That he is creator of all things that he is a radiance of the glory of God that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God that he sustains the universe by his word that he has made purifications for sins; and he is seated at the right hand of the father and I trust that we don't read this and we think well that sure is some nice theology I got a good theology lesson today Well, that was something I didn't really understand before. Now I know a little bit more about it. And and my brain just scrambled because that was a lot of stuff. If Jesus Christ is truly who the author of Hebrews proclaims Him to be in these verses, then we must all bow before Him and worship Him and obey His every claim on our lives. You see, Christian, it's not about living for ourselves. It's not about getting what we want, but it's all about Jesus. Our entire lives are supposed to be about Jesus and Him reigning supremely in us. The, the, every aspect of our life should be about Jesus. Christ, That we should bow before Him and worship. We should proclaim His glories when we gather on Sunday morning. That the whole entire service is about Jesus. That we sing praise to Jesus. That we talk about Jesus. That Jesus is the entire aspect of who we are. And to blatantly disobey the sovereign almighty creator and Lord of the universe. Would be incredibly arrogant. And it would be downright ignorant. Of who Jesus is. But. We often are guilty. Of insisting on our own. Way. I want it my way. Church don't miss it. God's son is supreme over all things and we must live our lives in complete obedience to him and so this morning I just ask you this are you in complete obedience to him are you in complete obedience to him and I don't know what that looks like in your life I don't know what what the Lord may have been doing in your life to bring conviction to you and in certain areas I have no idea I don't know what you walked in you're struggling with, or what in your life maybe you're holding on to and you've not surrendered to His obedience, I don't know. I don't follow you around. I don't spy on you. I simply ask you this morning, are you in complete obedience to Him? And if you're not, then I would challenge you this morning to cry out to Him and say, God, I want to be in complete obedience to You, to Jesus, the Supreme Sustainer of this universe. And secondly, do you even know Him as Savior? And if you'd say, I don't don't know what that is, I don't know if I know him, then I'd be glad to have a conversation with you about that. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. If you want to pray this morning, you want to come up here and pray, you can do so. You can pray in your pew. You can come grab my hand, say, Pastor, will you pray with me? I want to talk to you. Whatever. I'm willing uh, to do that with you. I'll be standing right down front. If you feel the need to respond, you can do that. If you want to talk later, we can do that. I just always like to give you a chance to respond to God's word. Let's close with prayer this morning.